we only have a few weeks left here, and out in the foyer, we, I feel like we have just taken over Christmas in this Merrimack Valley with our living live nativity. And so in two weeks from now, on Sunday morning, we're going to have... We're going to have goats and sheep that Pastor Caitlin keeps pushing the donkey and the bull on me, so we might have them outside. I ain't bringing them in here because I ain't cleaning up after them, but we're going to have petting zoos again, and boy, if there's, the reason we do this event is because we want to make it easy for you to invite somebody to church who normally would never come here. So if you're running on the ambulance or you're working on construction or you're at the uh, hospital or whatever, here's what we're asking you to do. Don't take a big stack of these. You ever do something, you're like, I'll take care of it, and you take a big stack, and then half of them go in the garbage. But if every one of you just took 10 of these out in the foyer today before you left, and it simply announces our live nativity on Sunday, December 22nd, two services, 8.30, 10.30. It is an awesome, awesome event, and it is a very basic message. We do not preach hellfire and brimstone at this service. It is a place where we celebrate the love of God. And on the back, I also feel, I also want to thank Sienna. I saw she was here earlier, but Sienna really pushed on us as a staff that we need to do something for Christmas Eve that's classy and enchanted. And so we are, have been purchasing through the years candle arbors, and we set up this whole beautiful event, and we give everybody, kids, but some of you adults steal them from time to time, they're glasses where every single light you look at is like a star of Bethlehem. It's amazing. And so both of these services, and here's the miracle, the holiday miracle is the candlelight service is only 30 minutes long. And every year we've done this, it has been 30 minutes. And uh, so we encourage you to do that because many of you have family plans on Christmas Eve and uh, from 6 to 6.30 and 30 minutes makes it possible to keep Jesus as the reason of the season and for us to have a beautiful moment. And so we ask your kids to be in here with you during that service and the Christmas one. So thank you for getting the word out so well. Pray with me as we open up God's word this morning. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you for your word. And we just pray that you would speak to our life the truth from Joseph's story in the Christmas narrative, Lord, that when your dream interrupts our plans, it's out of that if we yield, we find purpose. Speak to our need. Speak to our overbearing control. Speak to our areas where we need to grow in trust and help us to believe you for the best in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want you to turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 1, very familiar Christmas passage. You know, out of all the Gospels, there's only two of the four that write about the birth of Jesus that only speak of anything in his life before the age of 30. All of them jump right, Mark, John, they jump right into the ministry of Jesus, but Luke and Matthew are the ones that focus on the birth of Jesus, the nativity, and they share some things that are similar, but a lot of things that are different now, recently, Pastor Dylan, you don't even know this message was really a catalyst from a conversation we had in the direction, but recently, you ever read something and, or see something happen and you read in between the lines and you're like, oh, I know what's going on here, right? So sometimes you read scripture and you get an insight of what's really, really going on. Recently, Pastor Dylan was talking about Jesus and the story goes that he brought his 12 disciples to his house. Now, think about this for a minute. Mary is all in on Jesus. My son's the savior of the world. He's such a good boy. He's going to change everything. But the Bible says that his brothers and his sisters did not believe in him yet. So every time mom said, Jesus, you're just such a good kid, the brothers and sisters rolled their eyes and said, yeah, here we go again. So imagine Jesus shows up. What was that scene like in between the lines, right? He shows up. Hey, guys, I got my 12 friends. And one of Jesus's brothers is like, oh, great. So I bet mom's going to tell us that we have to give up our beds for them. And then mom goes, friends, Jesus brought his buddies, and I want you to give up your beds for them because we're good hosts, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, savior of the world. You know, thanks a lot, Jesus, you know. Mom never lets me throw parties. But, but like that in-between, what was that scene really, really like? Because Jesus was not just fully God, but he also was fully human. And sometimes there's in-between. When you look a little closer, you realize, oh, there's a story in the story here that's the real deeper thing that's going on. And as I began to pray and read and reread the story of the nativity, my attention went really close behind the scenes to Joseph. And all of a sudden it just struck me, boy, 
What do you do when God's dreams interrupt your plans? Well, if you yield, you find purpose. And if you don't, you see everything as a problem. You miss the good thing that God has for you. Let me ask this question of every single one of you real quick with the raising of hands. Just get your hand ready. Turn to your neighbor and slap them and just say, get ready. Yeah. (laughs) Someone's like, nobody ever told me to slap my mom. I'm doing it. (laughs) Right? (laughs) How many of you imagined what your spouse, when you grew up at some point in your life, whether later or earlier, what your spouse would be like or look like? Okay. Put it down. How many of you had an imagination of what the home that you would eventually live in would look like and be like? How many of you say jacuzzi, right? How many of you had a picture of what your career would look like? Okay, now putting your hands down. Hands keep going up and up, and in your mind, some of you are putting them up, and your body are just not, whatever, party poopers. But um, how many of you would say, by a raise of hand, that the plan went exactly the way you imagined it? Oops. And that's really the point of today. What do you do when God's dreams for your life interrupt your plans for your life? Well, if you yield to God, you find out his real purpose for it. See, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways aren't our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts and ways above ours. God says it like this. Many are the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plan to give you hope in the future. But I've learned this. Proverbs, many are the plans of a man or a woman's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Sometimes what we do is we come to God with our plans and say, oh Lord, bless this wonderful plan that works in my benefit the way that I have it so that I can control it. And God's like, yeah, nice plan. I'm at work in your life. What do you mean you're at work in my life? What do you do when God's dream interrupts your plan. Joseph really gives us a great example of how to handle our life when it happens. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Imagine how that conversation went down. What's up? Well, the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I had this funny story. I always love telling at this moment because I can't tell it every Sunday. But I remember when I was a youth pastor and this young couple, youth came into my office and, and they're there and she's pregnant and parent brings the two kids in, you know, unwillingly. And uh, they're like, "Um, we just don't know how this happened. (laughs) And I started laughing at them. I'm like, really? I go, This is not the virgin birth here, okay? We know exactly how this happened. But imagine what was that conversation like when Joseph had the bomb dropped on him. She's like, Holy Spirit. And he's like, what's Holy Spirit's first name? Because I'm going to knock him out, right? Like, how did that conversation go? You read between the lines because this is like, they're not running around talking in King James. Oh, blessed talk to you, Mary. They're walking around doing real life, trying to wrap their heart and mind around it like you and I do when... All of a sudden, we have this plan, and it gets twisted, and we're like, what? Now, here's why it's such a a hard thing for Joseph to probably wrap his mind around. If you look at Joseph, he had a perfect family in mind. Now, look at this guy. This guy comes from the perfect Joseph, the perfect family tree. In one of both, of both of the Gospels, there's this whole debate on, is one of them the lineage of Mary? Is one of them the lineage of J- Joseph? I think both of them, if you look closely, are actually speaking of Joseph's heritage. One of them tracks Joseph, uh, Joseph's family line all the way back to Abraham and King David because he's a proud Jewish man, right? He's, he mentions names that in, are in his genealogy. Matthew here, a few verses before what we read, go all the way back to, to people like David, King David, King Solomon, King Jehoshaphat, King Josiah. I mean, this is like a royal family. And if you have any argument over the royalty of my family, well, take a look at the other gospel in Luke where he goes through the family line there 
and it is an old and ancient family. This is like a historic family. Like every single one of us in the towns that we live in, there's always one family that owns all the property that's been around forever, that's in charge of all the committees and all that kind of stuff. And he's like, check out my family, man. It's not just royal. This family's ancient. You have people mentioned there like Boaz, who is the husband of Ruth, who gave birth to King David. So David's in there. But then he mentions people in this line that aren't in the other. He mentions Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He throws down the patriarch card and says, boom, before there was David, bam, we were part of the patriarchs. We were the founding family. We came here over the Mayflower and we started the whole Jewish tradition. And then he says, it goes back even further to Noah. We was on the boat. And then finally it ends with Adam. He says, we're not just royal. We're human. We're historic. What a family. And Joseph being the dignified, amazing man that he is, says, I come from a perfect family. I'm not perfect, but man, I want to uphold the tradition. Not only was he a perfect family line, but the, the interesting thing is, is that in some ways he was the perfect man, right? You ever see that comedy uh, commercial meme where it has a picture of a gingerbread man? Perfect man. He doesn't talk, he always smiles, and if he makes you angry, you can bite his head off. <laughs> Perfect man, gingerbread man. <laughs> but Joseph, the Bible says this of him, Matthew chapter 1, 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just and righteous man, was unwilling to put her to shame and resolved to divorce her quietly. It's amazing, in Jewish literature, there's a group of people that have a nickname that are called the, the righteous men, the Hatzadik. In the time of Jesus, there weren't just the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, and the Zealots, but there are even more groups of people that we know from all kinds of other literature than Josephus that talk about different kinds of guys. And this group is almost like Elijah. They're used in miracles, and they're, they're, they believe that the law is good, but you know what? Life is more important, and life gives way to, to law. How many of you know somebody that is so wrapped up in the detail and the, the right way that it's like they get the point and they miss the person? Not Jesus. Jesus is always saying, no, you know what? I know it's the Sabbath, but boom, what's, what's better for me to do? Leave this woman who's been crippled of, by Satan her whole life crippled to stay that way or for me to do good on the Sabbath and help her? You know what, woman? Stand up. Another guy, he's sitting there. He says, your sins are forgiven. Everybody's like, who do you think you are saying your sins are forgiven? Jesus says, what's easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your rise, your mat rise and walk. But that you might know the Son of Man is able to forgive sin, I tell you, pick up your mat, rise, and walk. And right there on the Sabbath, the guy gets up, rolls the mat. Why? Because he knew that the person and the point were equally important, and he upheld them. That's this kind of group. And Joseph, potentially, that idea of him being a righteous man, we always see it like this. Oh, Joseph, he's a good guy. He's a righteous guy. He won't put Mary to shame. But it actually, the, some believe that potentially that that is actually a title not an adjective describing him, and that Joseph actually is not only from a royal family, not only from an ancient family, but he also is a respected sage. Now, if you were to trust your child to be raised by somebody else, you've written that in your will, would you just pick anyone? Let's leave them with, with Giuseppe or Michael. There's some people in your family, would you not say, like, there's no way I want my kid raised by that person. I'd rather them raised by wolves. If you were God and you had to pick a family to leave your kid who was going to be the savior of the world, would you just fling him into obscurity or would you be intentional? God was very intentional. Joseph was a righteous man. You know, I fear there's so much, there's so much compromise in the church and there's so much of a need for us to grow in holiness that nowadays when it comes to a guy that's righteous, we're so focused on our failures and we don't want to feel bad about them that we downplay a righteous person. I think those are the examples we should say, man, I wasn't like that, but I respect that. Not only is Joseph seeming to be this perfect guy, but Mary, oh my goodness, I don't know if Luke's genealogy is about Mary's. I tend to not think so. I have some friends in this room that are scholars and we, we might be on the same page, we might not, but I'll tell you, I know one thing about Mary's lineage that'll blow your heart and mind, if you understand Judaism. It says this in Luke 1.28, first of all, God sends an angel to her, and he says to her, you who are highly favored by God. Now, a lot of people think Mary is holy and highly favored and should be worshiped because she 
carried Jesus and she was divine and she's worshiped. I grew up in the Catholic church. I think it's a little over the top there, but I think in the Protestant church where some of you might've grown up or outside of the church, she's downplayed so much that we miss the fact that God didn't just let his son be born anywhere, but he entrusted them to trustworthy people. There is, listen, anyone can roll in the mud. Anybody can take a bed with somebody. Anybody can filth their life up. It takes a pure person to walk straight in a crooked world. And it says about Mary, she was, she was holy. She was highly favored. She was a pure girl. She was a virgin. That's very hard to find in the church, let alone outside of the church. And I feel that because of our failures and because of the looking in the world and seeing the church and looking in the church and seeing the world, that we've lost the art of respecting purity because it's almost as if we want to feel better about ourselves that we downplay the purity of someone else and we think that it's not impressive. But let me tell you what, this couple is the most impressive couple that ever walked the face of the earth that God was so impressed by them, he said, that's somebody I could trust with my kid. Let's put him in the deed. If anything happens to me, Mary and Joseph, I know that they will raise that kid right. They weren't an accident. God was very intentional. But here's the thing about Mary. It says in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, that her cousin was Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who was married to Zechariah, who was a priest in the temple. So they're from a priestly line. Not only was he a priest, but they are actually going to be the parents of John the Baptist, who is going to be the one that introduces Jesus to the world. The point wasn't John. The point was that he must decrease and his cousin will increase. It's very hard in a day filled with egos where you can shape your reputation on posts and make yourself look the hero when you could be the villain. It's amazing how hard it is in the culture that we live in to really look at ourselves with honesty and to be able to, I think, why in our culture it's so difficult to see God glorified is because we're so busy trying to glorify ourselves in and outside of the church. Amen. I want God to be glorified in my life. My wife bought a block of wood that's it's Hobby Lobby. They're everywhere. It says this, do everything to the glory of God, not to the glory of Paul. Not to the glory of me or us, but to the glory of God. That was Mary. Certain priest, Zechariah, and his wife was of the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now here's the thing. It's a pretty good chance that this marriage that's being arranged with Joseph and Mary, this guy that comes from a royal family line, an ancient family line, if you were of the priesthood of Aaron, that is the purest priesthood there ever was. He was the first priest. This is like a perfect plan. And just like you and me, Joseph, I think, in between the lines, had an idea of what life was supposed to be like. And then God stepped in and gave him a dream, messed it all up. Because he had the perfect marriage, the perfect man, the perfect wife, and then the perfect storm came Look at verse 18. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with the Holy Spirit. To betroth, that's where we get the idea of engagement. And the way that engagement used to work was not that you didn't test drive that person and shared the same bed, but that you were engaged to that person. You said, I'm going to be faithful. I haven't given myself to somebody, but this next year, I will neither give myself to anyone nor will I give myself to you because you're going to be able to trust me in a marriage that I'm not going to cheat on you. And so they went into that marriage and it was this time of testing. And during that time, the daughter stayed with her parents and the man either on his own or with his family, and they took care of their own bills separately. Listen, I don't care if you're engaged with somebody. Until you're married, that's when you take care of each other's bills. Until you're married, that's when you, that's when you, you take care of each other as a couple. But until then, engagement and betrothal, there was nothing going on until the ring was on the finger, right? If you love it, then you better put a ring on it. And that's how it worked, right? Modern interpretation, translation there. But the perfect storm happens says, I'm pregnant. It's at this moment where I just think that Joseph would have been like, what just happened? Some of you in this room, you've been engaged to people, and then all of a sudden it all fell apart. And you know the pain of that, the betrayal of that. Some of you walked in, and somebody was kissing your girl or your guy, or you, know, you got a phone record. Or the sense of betrayal with that, heartache with that. 
And Joseph must have felt that. And the Bible says it was still playing out, and he's about to say, this party's over. I love you, but I'm sorry. And then he goes to sleep, and this is what amazes me about Joseph. God comes to him in a dream and says to him, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. You know that there's something to be afraid of if God's starting off the conversation by saying, don't be afraid. In fact, when the angel comes to Mary, he says to Mary, Mary, do not be afraid. The Spirit of God will come upon you, and you'll give birth to a son. You know what the the Lord was saying to her? In their culture, it meant you're going to be a single mom, you're going to be poor, nobody is going to care for you, you're going to be ostracized, you're going to be seen as an, an immoral woman. At those days, these days that we live in, in our culture that we live in, that's celebrated and venerated. In that culture, it was not. And so she was basically like, I'm going to be poor, I'm going to be rejected, but God's doing something, it's not about me. And she says this, Lord, may it be to me, as your, to your servant, as you said. Oh my goodness. Where are those girls in the church? They changed the world. And Joseph goes home and he's like, God, I have done everything right. Like, why is it? Why is it that we think that if something goes wrong that it's, it's like God's punishing us? You know what? Life happens. And Joseph's like, I've done everything right. I don't, God, but he's a good guy and that he's not gonna publicly shame her. My goodness, I hate Facebook. Because now you can just totally lie and ruin somebody's reputation and it's not even true. Imagine if you had a reason to. You could totally shape the public opinion, but not Joseph. Joseph says, you know what? I'm putting this matter away quietly. Can I tell you this church has a group of board members on it where we have faced some very challenging issues and I want you to know something, that they have always, always looked to behave like Joseph. Always. Godly men and godly women The world needs more Josephs in it. But instead, look at this. The Lord appeared to him in a dream. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I think the point here is this, at this point is this. When God's dreams for your life are given permission to interrupt your plans, you're gonna discover purpose. See, if you're so wrapped up in your plan and the way that you have to have total control of your life, you're gonna miss so many random purposes because here's what I've come to find is is that my plans are really good but they're not always God's plans in fact that's biblical my thoughts are not your thoughts my ways are not your ways as high as the heavens are above the earth mine are way above yours you're thinking too low here you're trying to make it all fit and you want it to be awesome and all this different stuff and um but hey listen trust me and Joseph he wakes up and this is what's amazing about him If anyone had reason to walk away, if anyone had reason to doubt, not trust, bail out, take off. Joseph did, but you know what? He didn't. I love it. There's a shirt out there. This is going out to every single one of you stepdads that's out there. Some of you, you're awesome, and if somebody uses the word stepdad, it's offensive to you, and it should be. It says on the t-shirt, it says, I'm not the stepdad, I'm the dad that stepped up. That's who Joseph was. You're a stepdad and you're here, you're a hero, man. Because that's what Joseph was. That wasn't his kid. But instead of him stepping out, he stepped up. And he stepped into the plan of God, even though it didn't go out the way that he had it all mapped out and, and planned out. And he did it because he knew and believed what God had said. What's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Listen, can I tell you something? Some of you in life, in this past year, in the year to come, and in the years past, and it'll always happen, you've got plans, and they're wonderful. And let me tell you what, if you, don't plan, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And it, if you, it's biblical. The Bible says that no one goes, it steps into war without counting the cost, building a tower, counting the cost. Like planning is an important thing, but... It says this also in Proverbs. It says, many are the plans of a man's heart. It's the Lord's purpose that prevails. And sometimes heaven has to tune in and speak to us in a unique way to get our attention because our plans aren't always God's plans. And God steps in and he says, I've got a bigger dream for your life. I've got a bigger purpose. And it's not gonna make you the center of attention, but it is going to save the world. And if you'll trust me, if you'll yield, if you'll just allow me to do this and step up instead of stepping out, we can do something incredible. And 2,000 
thousand years later, we hear the name of Joseph and we talk about him here because he was a guy, instead of holding tight to his plans, he was willing to let them go for the dream of God. And out of that, he found out his purpose in life was not to be the father of a king or the father of an incredible family line, but he actually was going to be the father of the son of God and he was gonna protect Jesus. God called that man to be a defender. And can I tell you something? Some of you men in this, in this room even now, a man's greatest calling is to be a protector and a defender, a cultivator of a safe environment for it. And that's, that's purpose in a man's life. Like we're not called to just go and have a job and bring it home. We need to be about in, running interference for our families, running interference for our kids, saying, picking a direction and going for it, being the one that takes the first hit and throws the last punch. Like that's what we're called to be. And Joseph said, all right, I don't have to be well-known. And in fact, there's not very much that we know about him, but I tell you what, he's the first person I want to know when we get to heaven next to Jesus and my family. What an amazing man. The definition of true manhood is not how hard of a punch you can throw. It's how hard of a one you and your reputation and your face can take without throwing one back because you know the higher purpose of God. And that goes for you as ladies too. You're called to higher ground. Your life is an occasion. Rise to it. Rise to it. God wants you to be a part of his dream. And it might mean along the way you'll have to face a scheme. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. I had to make it rhyme. Luke chapter 2. Luke, in his account, gives us something that we don't have from the other gospels. But Joseph had... God had a dream, Herod had a scheme to destroy the plan of God. Have no doubt about it, God has a dream, but hell definitely has a scheme to destroy everything good that could come out of your life. And he wants you to dismantle it. He wants to use you to self-destruct yourself. But along with that, Joseph had a scene where he had a house and he had a picket fence and he had 1.25 children, according to the national average, and a dog. And, and <clears throat> this is going to be hard because many of you have grown up with the whole Jesus being born in a barn. It's incorrect. And I'm not trying to pop your bubble. I just I, I want to know what Scripture shows, but it's really beautiful. Joseph had a plan for the perfect scene of a house. When I shared what I'm about to share with you about, and you, anyone who's been here for a while, you've heard this, at least the story of the Christmas nativity, but... Uh, I remember sharing this with a student. Her name was Emily Majek. She was a student in one of my classes of Jewish backgrounds of, of the New Testament and Jesus. And after I got done saying it, she said, so what you're trying to tell me is Jesus wasn't born in a barn. He was born in a home surrounded by love? I said, yes. She goes, that's better than the story I've grown up with. That's what I want to propose to you and unpack very quickly here. Joseph had a plan. It was a home. It was that he was going to marry a pure girl. He thought that she wasn't, and then God set him straight, and he said, okay, it's not what I planned, but I'll adjust the plan. I've got a perfect home. We're going to go to Jerusalem. Well, how could you say that Joseph had a home that he brought Mary to and not a barn? Well, I can show it to you in between Scripture here. Uh, the word used in the Gospels, there was no room for them in the inn. I don't know if I, I totally, yeah. This is a home and what it looks like in the time of Jesus. Actually, all the way from the time of David to Jesus, they alter a little bit. But what you would do in your home is, is it's hot in Israel. There's no air conditioning. So you'd cook outside and you'd have a roof. And up on the roof, if it was too hot to be inside, you could sleep at night outside. And then down in the lower part of the home is where you would have your cooking, you would have your storage, but you'd also have an animal pen so that if a sheep was giving birth, or if a sheep was wounded, you'd bring it into the lower section of the home. Some of these houses were up against a cave, and it provided natural AC in it. That's like half-sunken basements. But here's, here's the cool thing. In the house, there was an upper section, and I can give it to you in Greek. This area is called, you want to try a Greek word? Do it with me. Just say katalumatai. Yes. I heard that no. Say yes. Say it. I want Matt to say it all on his own. Katalumatai. <laughs> it's a harder language than Portuguese, I know, but it's okay. I'm just teasing you. Love you guys. So this is how a home was. 
Now, if I want to talk about an inn like the Holiday Inn or the Sheridan Inn or the Doubletree Inn or my favorite, La Quinta, and you can get free breakfast and some kick and waffles there. But if you do that, I'm not going to use the word, just how we use the word hotel for hotel and we use the word house for house, bedroom for bedroom and hotel room rented for, for that. So in the Greek language, you wouldn't use the word katalumatai, which is this little tiny room upstairs where you would be, and it was usually kind of small you would actually use the word in their language, pondexion. Yes, you're good Greek students. Well, here's the thing. There is one place in the New Testament where that word pondexion is used, and it's the Good Samaritan. He walks along the road, he finds a guy beat up, he puts him on his donkey, he drops him off, he brings him to a, not a katalumatai, an inn, he brings him to a pondexion, and he says, here's my credit card, take care of this guy, help him, heal him, boom. You tracking with me so far? Puts his credit card away. He doesn't say katalumatai. That's not the word you use for a bedroom in a house. Now, the gospels say there was no room for them in the... Now, we read in and we put all our baggage and say it's a hotel, it's a barn. That came out of the Middle Ages. That's not what it's talking about. There was not room for them in the katalumatai. There wasn't room in there because it's a tight part of the space for the house. Why? Because birth in the Jewish culture is a family event. You, in the day in we live, the guy's in the waiting room, and he's handing out cigars. Christians hand out gum cigars, right? But inside there, maybe your mother-in-law is there with your, with your wife, but that's about it. Maybe a sister. In Judaism, you had your mom, your mother-in-law, your sisters, your cousins, your aunts, and it was this big event. And what's happening is, is, is there's not, it's not that there's no room for them in a hotel room. They're actually at Joseph's house, and there's not enough room for everybody up there, so they relocate. Well, what do you mean? There's a barn. There's, there's, they put him in a manger. Yep, because there's one of those downstairs in every single one of these houses. You see it? You track it? It's literally that simple. So what I'm trying to tell you is, is Jesus wasn't born in a barn. He was born in a home surrounded by love. Joseph was protecting that child, keeping him secret, keeping him safe. Well, how could you say that, Pastor Paul? Well, more of the Gospels tell us about that. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all should, regist- should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, they add this little caveat on there, and Joseph went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, because that's where Mary lives, we know, to Judea of the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. He's not just going there because he's Jewish and because that's where his lineage is from, but when you were of a tribe, you owned possession and property in a particular area. And here's the thing. This is not a census where they're counting how many of you good little Jewish boys are from Judah, right here. How many of you good Jewish boys are good little people from the tribe of Manasseh over here? They're not trying to do that. Rome is conducting this census, which means that it is a tax assessment. Why are they assessing Joseph's taxes? Because he owns a home. Because Jesus was not born in a barn. He was born in a home surrounded by love. And he was in that house because Joseph was the father that stepped up, not the stepfather. And he brought Mary and Jesus into that home and protected him. And the night that he was born, magi show up with gifts. Angels show up with songs. And the world has never been the same since that moment that Jesus stepped into the world. And there's all kinds of stuff I've thrown in here that just we don't have time. There's Jewish literature, and you can knock yourself out if you like that stuff. A mention of the census outside of the Bible and Josephus, you can read that if you want. But if you see all of this and miss the scheme that Herod tries to use to destroy the child, the Magi show up and they say, hey, we've come here to worship the one born king of the Jews. That was actually Herod's nickname, the king of the Jews. And they said, we've got gifts for him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And he comes out, myrrh and frankincense were worth their weight in gold, and gold's worth its weight in gold. This was a king's treasure. This was like, if you received this treasure, you pretty much could retire for the rest of your life. They walk in, or at least for a, a few decades. And they walk in, and as soon as they walk in, they have these gifts. They're royal emissaries. They're magi. They're known and respected throughout the world. They had access to kings. They show up. Where's this one born a king of the Jews? And he's like, for me? Moi? And they're like, no, the child. And what does Herod say? He says, where's the baby? I want to worship him too. He didn't want to worship him. He wanted to kill him. And we know that the plot happened there. But now Joseph says, all right, my marriage isn't perfect. 
but I accept it. I yield to the dream of God so I have purpose in my life. But now his perfect little home is about to get ruined because that night when he goes to sleep and that night when the Magi sleep, the Magi are told in a dream, do not go back to Herod and report where the child is. And they go back to their country a different way. And at the same time, God gives Joseph a dream and the gospels say it like this, rise and go to Egypt. Because Herod seeks to kill the child. Here's the thing about life and our plans. You and I never plan for life-threatening situations, do we? We never plan for setbacks and problems and difficulties. But here's this thing, life happens. I know that it's, and God doesn't schedule this. God is not the author of your destruction and your pain, but because there's sin in the world and there's evil in the world, it happens. And just as sure as God has a dream, Satan has a scheme, and it doesn't always line up with your plan and your scene of your perfect little picket fence and your perfect little career and your perfect little this, that, and the other thing. But then God steps in and he says to Joseph, listen, I didn't give that to you so that you could retire wealthy and enjoy nice things and your kid could get braces and he could get his car when he's 16 and all this and I know he's the savior of the world but I gave this to you because I knew this moment was coming you need to get out because your life's in danger and right here the son of God the king of all the universe the creator of the world goes from king of all kings to refugee of all refugees and that treasure carried them through that difficult season that treasure was there so that every week Joseph could go to the trader station and say hey I need some food for this gold let me sell this myrrh let me sell this frankincense. And then in a dream, God says to him, the one who sought the child's life has died. And it says that he goes back into the, into the, into the land. And in fact, let me, let me point this out to you. If you look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 22, it reads like this. He would, it, it says that he walked back in and he was going to go back in there, but he, when he found out that Herod's son Archelaus was living and ruling in place of his father, the son was horrible. He was worse than his father. He says, if we go back to Bethlehem, why is he trying to go back to Bethlehem? If they were just there in a hotel, I'll tell you why. They were trying to go back to Bethlehem because they're trying to go back to his home. But he had to let go of his house because he realizes if he goes there, the son will find them. And so this is where the Bible says in chapter 2, verse 22, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and he lived a town called Nazareth so that it was spoken by the prophets that he might fulfill that which was that he would be called the Nazarene. And 600 years before this, God spoke through the prophet Micah and said, you, O Bethlehem, will give birth to a great leader. You know, it's amazing. God has not only got dreams for our lives, but they're actually the best plans. And they're usually planned out before any one of your days ever came to be. And the question and the challenge God has for your life, are you willing to let go of your plan in order to step into God's dream so that you can discover the real purpose of why he has you here? Joseph probably had a really amazing plan and an incredible dream, but what sets Joseph apart from me and for you is that he was quick and swift, as sure as he was righteous, that he was able to let go of the plan as he saw it to step into the dream as God gave it. That is called submission. That is called instant obedience. That's called yieldedness, and that's so difficult. So difficult to do. It's hard. When you allow God's dreams to interrupt your plans, you find God protects you from the devil's schemes. Let me tell you a, a story. Because I'm Irish. Let me tell you a story, right? Um, you've heard lots of different things of our life, but let me share a certain side to it that you probably haven't heard. Many of you know, at one point, my wife had a, a tumor, wasn't supernaturally removed by prayer. She went through surgery. It was an interesting season in her life. But I got to set the stage just bringing you through that. We were newly married, and uh, she suspected that something was not right. I was just oblivious and male. That's what we are. And as it turns out, my mom calls and says, Paul, I was in church, and I felt like, I felt like we needed to pray for you. I was like... Oh, awesome, mom, thanks. Now, you have to understand, my mom is introverted. You'd be shocked I came from her womb. She's really introverted. She said, you don't understand, the pastor was in the middle of preaching. And I stood up and interrupted him and said, I feel like we need to pray for my son and his wife right now. And the pastor looked at her and said, I was just thinking the same thing. And so the whole church 
shifted from listening to a message to a concert of prayer for my wife and I. And my mom said on the phone to me, Paul, I don't know what you're about to go through, but whatever it is, I feel like God wants you to know it's going to be okay. So I hang up the phone. Now, I share it with my wife, right? And it's coming, consider the source, mother-in-law, right? So <laughs> she's like, what does that mean? Like, you're going to get hit by a car and you're going to drink out of a straw and I've got to like, you know, change your diaper for the rest of your life. What does that mean, you know? I mean, like, seriously, like, hey, you're going to go through something really difficult. God bless. Have a great day. That's not part of the plan. And shortly after that, the phone rings. I pick it up. It's the doctor's office. Yes, we'd like to speak with Diana Conway. This is uh, her doctor. I go, this is her husband. They're like, we don't care. We're not talking to you. Put her on. So I go, hey, honey, come here. They say, Miss Conway, we suspect that you have a brain tumor from your blood work. You need to come in. Now, this isn't the point, but it's the platform. Here's what was going on in the meantime. Before we heard all of this and God began to supernaturally remind us it's going to be okay, a few weeks before this, I, was, I had a free ride, virtually a free ride, to a seminary in the movement, Assembly Got Theological Seminary. We had picked out an apartment. We had a great plan. And then while my wife was doing her internship for school, they, her teacher, the last like week, it was totally inappropriate, the last week or month, like before, something ridiculous, she said to her, I just don't feel comfortable graduating you. I want you to stay for just one more semester. My wife is smart. She got on the phone with the president of the school, said, listen, I've paid for a product. She did not communicate to me. My wife was right on all of these points. She should have been giving me feedback. She did not give me feedback. She should have been giving me input. She wasn't giving me input. She just kept saying, I'm doing fine. You can't just drop this on somebody a week before they're ready to graduate. And the president, the president of the school was like, I, I hear your point, I understand, but if we do not back the people we do internships with, the whole system falls apart. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to pay for this semester. You won't have to pay for it again. Well, that doesn't help us because we're supposed to get married, hop in a car, drive to the Midwest, start my college, enjoy our new apartment, enjoy our new married life. In, our, in, in my, in my uh, free ride, I know I'm supposed to go in further education, and now the whole thing blows up. And my wife says to me, like, this is what makes her awesome. She's like, just go. I'll be okay and catch up. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. Now we say that all the time, just go. And we're like, all right, peace. <laughs> right? That's what years of marriage will do for you. But at that point, I'm like, I'm not taking off. I'm not bailing out. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I walk into the office. I'm working in the mortgage industry at this time, but I'm fully involved in ministry. And so my boss, I say to him, listen, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'm not going out to school. And I told the situation, and he's just gruff and he's awesome, but he's like, sit down and shut up. He goes, here's, how much do you need for food each week? And I go, well, you know what? If we use coupons and stuff, we could do $50. He goes, 50 bucks? He goes, what, what are you, like living in a starvation diet? You can't, you need $200. And then he goes, uh, how much do you need for rent? I said, you know what? We might be able to find a, a, an apartment. What are you going to rent from your mom and live in the basement? You need this much for rent. And then he went through everything that I said. He called me an idiot, like quadrupled the rate, and then said, hit print and ripped it and said, bring this to the accountant. That's your new salary. But before he did that, he said, what are we doing for you for insurance? And I go, uh, nothing. And he goes, all right, go down. Hold on. Shh. Writes on there. He says, give this to Elaine, the, the bookkeeper. Tell her that I want her to put you and your wife on my level tier of insurance. Now, we did the math. Had we followed the plan, we would have been in the Midwest with about $100,000 to $150,000 of mortgage equivalent debt with no education and no job to pay for it if we stuck to the plan. But because God interrupted the plan, we had insurance. And she went through a very trying situation, not 2,000 miles away from family, but with her mother and father and friends and family there. And out of that, instead of me being upset with God and frustrated with the situation, we just took life as it came to us. And here we are today. I got a doctoral degree. My wife wants a refund on all this education. Like, God's been good to us. We just paid off our student loan just recently. Now, trust me, that's, I'm not celebrating that at 50 you know, years of age, but like, God's been good to us. And here's what I conclude from that. When you allow God's dreams to interrupt your plans, you find that God protects you from so much, but he also gets you to participate in so much. 
I feel like I've stolen a life. And I feel like that family that isn't in that video, I feel like the opposite family, that it's so easy to just complain about everything that doesn't go perfect instead of celebrating and pausing and rejoicing for so many blessings, it could be so much harder. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and we're going to give God an invitation to help us to dream. We're going to tell him it's not going to be easy, but we're going to give him to give us an opportunity to let go of our plans. Maybe part of that plan is part of God's plan, but sometimes I find that part of it is and then part of it just isn't because God's doing something. See, Joseph might have thought he was gonna be the father of the king and, and all of the prestige and all of this and the perfect family and the perfect respectable wife and the perfect home and the perfect everything. And instead, just like in this church right now, there were some of you that have know what it is to be refugees from war in camps. And some of us, thank God, many of us in this room, we never even gave a single thought to that. That's what the Son of God experienced. But thank God for a man named Joseph who wasn't the stepfather, but he was the father that stepped up. But here's the things that I feel like God would want us to be mindful of as people for the prayer team come forward. Here's what I think God would want us to think about. First of all is this. When you give permission for God's dreams to interrupt your plans, it's really at that moment that you can begin to get down to the serious task of finding out what God's purpose is for your life instead of the one that you want to hand to him. Secondly, when our plans become expectations on God, we become disappointed with him. Some of you in this room right now, you're mad at God, you're upset with God, you're disappointed with Christianity, you're disappointed with God, but the reason you are is because you've expected something from him that you never should have, you've expected something from his people that you never could have, and the truth of the matter is, is that the problem is, is instead of yielding to God's dream, you're holding tight to your plan and really God knew all along it wasn't as good as you thought it was. You're depressed. You're discouraged. You're angry. When your memories become greater than your dreams, you reside your life to a status quo. And that happens because so many of us are so stuck to the plan that we miss the magical beauty of being part of God's purpose. A friend of mine, he's a professional counselor. <clears throat> His name's Mike Panza. And he just said something recently to me that just gripped me. He said, Paul, he said, personal happiness comes down to personal responsibility. Doing what you can to change yourself as opposed to thinking that you need to remove yourself from the problem but moving the person to living a flexible responsibility. You know, some of us are stuck because we have this plan and it's not going the way we are and you're angry and upset with people and you're, you're, you've got much to say about others and you're disappointed with them and you have these expectations on them and the real problem is, is that it's not, it's not that God was supposed to provide a certain way or supposed to pull through in a certain way. The problem is, is that you're not taking personal responsibility for the way that God's trying to lead you. And he's saying it's time for you to let go. And trust me, no one should be responsible for, and nobody is responsible for your happiness or your success. That's unfair and it's too much to ask of anybody. A spouse, some of you are angry with people that aren't even a part of your life anymore and you're depressed in the holiday seasons. You're trying to buy happiness with money. You can buy fun with money, but you can't buy happiness. You can't buy contentment. You can't buy purpose with it. We rarely have a heart of thanksgiving and joy and commitment or peace because we're committed to the plan and not the dream that God has for us. We miss the key to following God. Trust and responsibility yield together one to another. And here's the conclusion I'd say to you. We rarely experience what it is to live in the will of God's plan for our life because we never gave him permission to allow his dreams to interrupt our plans and we've learned to live without purpose in our life. Instead, we create our own. And the problem is, is that it, it lacks divine impact. It lacks holy significance. And it definitely, in the end, might have fun, but does not end in peace and contentment. I say this to you because this is a man, just like you, who has had plans blow up in his face people disappoint him, stuff that didn't come through, and the whole time God's saying, Paul, 
Will you own your stuff for yourself, please? Stop blaming other people and others. Don't, when you, you know when you're off, you know when you're off is when you're blaming other people or circumstances for your lack of being there. You know what? The Bible says this, in everything give thanks to God. I remember sitting in the hospital room saying, oh God, I don't know if my wife's, you know, coming through the surgery. It wasn't as intense as I thought it was going to be, but I didn't know if she, I don't know, but I just want you to know I love you for who you are, not for what you do for me. I want you to know that I had all kinds of plans and you've just rearranged it, but I want you to know I'm not mad at you and I'm not mad at people. I, I, I'm just going to trust you. This is why so many of you this holiday season, you're depressed, you're angry, you're lacking peace in your life is because you're holding so tight to the plan and God's saying, will you please dream with me again because I have something greater for your life than that small little idea that you call life. How many of you want to trust a God worthy of trust? This isn't like putting your trust in a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a disappointing parent. This is the God of the universe. And if God could trust Jesus in the hands of Mary and Joseph, in, in the reign of a guy like Herod, in a refugee camp called Egypt, to bring him into Nazareth, to live and die on a cross so that you and I could be here today, 2,000 years later, all around the world, sharing eternal life with Jesus. Don't you think that he can work your life out to something much better and beautiful than what you've been able to do with it. I want to trust him again. I struggle with it. I want to learn how to. So Father, let's stand. Lord, in the name of Jesus, across this room, here and now, Lord, you change everything. Lord, we're asking you to change us, change our trust issues, change our plan to your dream, change our plan to your purpose. And Lord, it's going to be more than a prayer. It's going to be a whole lifestyle of, of not, Lord, when we start to get angry with people and situations and politics and spouses and kids, that's not the point. That's a cloud to the issue. It's, we need to trust you. Life wasn't perfect. You came to redeem it. And so we want to be part of that. Help us to trust you. Help us to yield to you, Lord. That's the problem. We're holding so tight to the plan, we can't yield anymore. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done in our life. It's a beautiful and it's a wonderful life if we would just live it according to your dream. And so today across this room, I pray that you would begin to give your people hope and help to let go of the plan and to grip tightly to the dream and take life as it comes, not as we imagined it. Lord, the problem is, is that we're demanding that it unfold according to our imagination instead of the way that life just simply happens. And we're going to make the most of it. And we're going to glorify you through it. And when we get to heaven, we're going to find out that you were doing more through us than we recognized. We want to do everything to the glory of God. In Jesus' name. I want to say two things here. One is the worship team plays you've got an area that you need to lay down and pick up God's, God's hope for your life, this is the moment to do it. This is a place to do it. Across this altar. We weren't meant to do life alone. We were meant to do it together. And someone here will pray with you or maybe you'll want to pray on your own. But come to the altar. Give Jesus your control. Give him your plan. Secondly, this is just sort of an announcement just to say all musicians, singers, people after about maybe 10 minutes here, we're going to meet in the prayer room and we just have a... Uh, I hate saying the word mandatory, but a necessary quick meeting. But right now, if you're in that group that's going to be meeting there, take this next 10 minutes along with these other people and do it. Do it. Join me with it. Amen? Lord, we give this moment to you. We give our plan to you. Help us to dream again. In Jesus' name. Chains fall, fear bow here now. Jesus, you change everything.